Good evening. It is Wednesday, October 4th, and this is Talking Sports with Evan. And today, joined by uh, from the Bucks Radio Network and uh, 620 WTMJ, Justin Garcia. And I uh, appreciate you spending some time to talk uh, mis- miscellaneous things tonight, especially the Bucks basketball. Yeah, uh, happy to be here once again. How many repeat guests have you had? This is at least um, two or three. I think it's uh, you and one other person I tend to have uh, on consistently. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's already hard to believe it's it's here in a couple days that we get the first preseason game. But the longest offseason I've, uh, I've ever been a part of. So, could not come soon enough. <laughs> Probably probably became uh kind of a fun one of the more fun off seasons you've been a part of too i think it was almost a week to the day maybe a week from a week uh, to the day yeah. yeah week of the uh from today where uh the news came out get the app pushes on the phone that dame is now a milwaukee buck so when you got that alert when you got notified of that i guess what was your initial reaction seeing that dame is a buck because up until that point it was he's going to be a miami heat or nothing and now he's a buck um, yeah. And well, and I should, I suppose, clarify, we have had off seasons longer, at least like early into me doing this. Um, but with the expectations, this was the longest, uh, <laughs> longest off season I've been a part of. So I found out, um, you know, who Mark Stein is, um, yeah. he, so he has his own, um, site that he writes for, and there's a discord if, if you remember that you have access to, and I got a notification on my phone from that discord server where some, somebody just posted like in what world would the bucks have the assets for Dame Lillard? And um, I just assumed this was one of his conversations where he would just mention like, Oh, the bucks are kicking the tires and asking around on Damian Lillard. It was just people pushing back. of like, how, how could they even do this? And then I started to uh, get notifications of texts and, uh, tweet notifications and everything else where, where then I, I had to rush to uh, Twitter and look at what was happening and was stunned and, and had to, to keep refreshing and, and look at more than one of the reports to, to see that the Bucks had landed Damian Lillard because um, we had talked about it a, a couple of times over the off season on locked on Bucks and a few other shows that I had done of, you know, what would you theoretically give up for Dame or could this potentially happen? And and I think myself and everybody else kind of said, whatever you want, but no, this can't happen. The Bucks don't have the assets for it. So that was the part that stunned me, not that, that they would have an interest or would do this, but they had the assets. And I, I think it is important to also point out that we talk about winning in the playoffs and how you need a lot of things in your favor. You need luck is one of those. And I do think luck was a component here as well. And that the bucks were fortunate or lucky that the Suns had devalued the asset of Deandre Ayton so much that they kind of approached this off season and, and heading into camp of like, he just can't be here, that that's the level it, it, it got to. Um, so that kind of helped the bucks asset burden in that, the Blazers need some size. They wanted a, a young big man. And here's a guy that's going to be available as, as part of this package. So we just need some matching salary and something that we can spin off for assets. And then we're going to need some draft capital as well. But without that, and if the Suns just said, you know what, 
let's make this work. Frank Vogel has, has done a good job of developing young big men. I understand that maybe uh, DeAndre doesn't have a whole lot of fans within the organization right now, but we think we can make this work. If that was the play the Suns made, Damian Lillard's not a member of the Bucks. Yes, he talked about what the Bucks had to give up, and they ended up Drew Holiday to the Blazers, now with Boston, and then Grayson Allen to the Suns, and then some draft picks. What are your thoughts on what the Bucks had to get up in order to bring in? I know Drew Holiday, key important uh, member of that championship, uh, good guy in the city, good guy in the locker room, uh, great defender, and just brought a lot to the table. But what are your thoughts on what they had to get up to give him? So on paper, it doesn't feel like a lot. Now, you gave up your entire draft through the end of the decade, not just in this deal, but a number of other deals that the Bucks have made here. Um, I am of the mindset of, I don't care about draft picks in, in 2027. I understand that short-term thinking, but as long as you got number 34, you got to do everything you can to win so long as he is in a Bucks uniform. So that part, I'm fine with. The Drew part, look, um, John Horst said this, a few other people said this on media day too. You got to give up something to get something back. Like you, you can't just get Damian Lillard for free. So you knew it was going to cost you something. Um, the fact that he ended up in Boston is the tough part. And I I've seen a lot of man, if the bucks knew that drew holiday was going to end up with the Celtics, do you think that they would undo this trade? No, I, I think, this was a trade you had to make because it was kind of similar to the, the 2020 off season where you just kind of felt like we keep doing this over and over and over. And as much as we want to point to yeah, buts in, in health, you didn't have Chris Middleton two years ago, Giannis. That's a part of losing to the heat. He gets hurt in game one. Wasn't the same. Now, you, you had him on the floor for the remainder of the series, but he was impacted by that. But, you know, still, I think we saw the deficiencies with this team, and that was on the offensive end, in that your offense just wasn't good enough in the postseason, especially in the half court, and this is a move that changes that. So, to me, if you ran back the same group and said, you know what, we think we're going to be healthy this time. We don't think Giannis is going to have this freak fall and uh, be banged up for this series. We don't think Chris is going to slip on a wet spot. Hopefully nothing happens to Drew, and we feel like we're good enough. I just don't know if you can keep doing that year after year after year. This would have been the third straight year of doing that. And also, I think this alleviates pressure from Adrian Griffin, because in that scenario, the only thing that changed was the coach. So if you get off to a slow start, if injuries happen, all of a sudden the conversation is going to be, well, Giannis is clearly not sticking around for this. That's what's going to start to seep in. And the next thing is going to be, well, did the Bucks make the right coaching hire? Like That's what the narratives are going to become. Adrian Griffin is an afterthought now. So I, I think you've taken pressure off of him that all the focus is on Damian Lillard and Giannis. And at least in the regular season, this works perfectly on paper that I don't think anybody would dispute that this is probably going to be one of the three best offenses in the league. And, and with that, especially knowing that you and the Celtics on paper, at least are on another level than the rest of your conference, you're going to win a lot of games. And, you know, you would think you're not going to finish lower than third. And even then you two should be one and two in, in no certain order there. 
So Bucks Media Day Monday. I know you were there. What was kind of the uh, the feel there with the you know the media day with Dame being there, the new coach uh, chatter once again about Giannis? Will he? Won't he? Uh, do the supermax? You know, what was kind of the feeling there while you were at Bucks Media Day? Um, it was a lot of excitement that you know there was a a pretty nice turnout there. We had um, all the national outlets accounted for. ESPN was there. Mark Spears was there from ESPN and Anscape. Uh, obviously, Chris Haynes was there. So there was a lot of national faces. CBS was there. Um, and, and there was just a buzz in there of, number one, people were waiting to see Damian Lillard uh, up there on the podium and waiting to hear from him. But I think more importantly, they just wanted to see Damian Lillard, <coughs> excuse me, on that stage in a Bucks uniform to to kind of like, holy cow, this is this is official. So... The feeling was there was a buzz and, um, you know, coming into it kind of like what I said about the pressure that otherwise would have been on Adrian Griffin, all of that changed too, where I think otherwise going in, the focus is on Griff and you want to hear, okay, what is he going to do differently? And I think there would have been a lot more pointed questions over what's your philosophy with this and how are you going to utilize Giannis? What do you think offensively? What are you guys going to do on defense? How much drop are you going to play? None of that came up again, that it was just a Damian Lillard. Hey, how great is it going to be to have Dame and Giannis on the floor together? And have you imagined some offensive sets? And then some of the questions about defense uh, to not only Griff, to Dame himself, who gave a, a very long answer on why he thinks, not that he's Drew Holiday and he even said, I'm not Drew Holiday. I don't think anybody in this league is, but I don't think I'm as bad defensively as I've kind of been labeled as that, you know, when you come in as a young player, defense is very tough to pick up because you don't know player tendencies. You haven't played against them as much your first year in the league. You don't know the terminology. And after a year or two, you kind of realize that all of these teams use a lot of the same terminology and same sets. So that kind of helps you decipher and pick up on, you know what? I bet this guy's going to curl around that screen or I bet they're going to run this here. And these are all things that Damian Lillard said. I learned that after a couple of years in the league, and I feel like I started to get better and better. Uh, he said, when you look at my progressions, I, I think you can see I've gotten better year after year defensively. I know how to switch. I know team concepts. I'm a willing defender, but also I've never played on a team with individual talents defensively like a Giannis and a Brooke Lopez and just an overall good team defense that I feel like I'm going to hold my own here. So right now, we don't really know a lot about how Griffin is, even before Dame got here, what Griffin's going to do offensively with Giannis and Middleton and whatnot. But now you look at Dame in the picture, just what are some ways do you think the Bucs can utilize their offense uh, with both Giannis and Dame on the court together and Middleton and Lopez can still light it up and what how do you what what do you think uh Griffin's gonna do there? Um just let those two guys take over. No, um, you know, Giannis has never played with a guy like Dame, which is maybe the understatement of the century because like very few teams have had a player like Damian Lillard, you know, like I was gonna say the Bucks have never had a guy like this, but you know, what 25 teams in the league have never had a guy like this. So it's going to change a lot. And I, I think we've all envisioned like, man, how do you defend this pick and roll and, and things like that. But, you know, just the mere fact that 
Dame, other than Giannis, he and Steph are the other two guys you would point to and say, man, these guys just have gravitational pull that when they're on the floor, you got to account for them. And like Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, other guys, very, very good. Nikola Jokic, skilled offensive guys. Like you got to account for them, but it's different with Dame and Steph where as soon as they cross half court, they're in scoring position. So uh, to pair that with Giannis, I think we've all, you know, kind of imagined what is this pick and roll going to going to look like. But to me, it's a step further than that in that, you know, Brooke Lopez, we've talked about, um, he really looked rejuvenated a season ago. And offensively, we know he can still score around the basket. But the other area where he really shined was in the pick and roll when he was on the floor with Joe Ingles. That duo, that was the Bucks' best pick and roll a season ago. So now, you know, you add Damian Lillard to that mix and you say, well, we're going to give Giannis a breather. And we got Dame and Brooke Lopez on the floor together and we can still run the pick and roll. Brooke can roll to the rim. Brooke can fade back and uh, and hit the shot from beyond the arc too. Chris Middleton all of a sudden becomes your tertiary scorer where it's it's just a matter of, okay, you have somehow defended the pick and roll. Maybe you're the Boston Celtics or another team that has the personnel. Well, now you got an open Chris Middleton waiting in the corner on the baseline um, to knock down the shot. So offensively, like this is going to be a foreign concept. It's it's almost going to be like when Bud came in, um, you go back to that first preseason game and just the expectations then were not let's be the one seed. It was, can this team get to a four seed and have home court advantage in the first round? And boy, it'd be nice to shoot some more threes because we didn't do a ton of that under Jason Kidd. And that first preseason game, I don't remember the number, but it was over the over 40 in terms of threes that they attempted. And I remember leaving that game just thinking, holy cow, like this is going to be their offense that they're just going to be chucking up this many threes. It's going to be a similar feeling with Damian Lillard where, you know, the Bucs were a good regular season offense. They could score. A lot of that was Giannis in transition and the open shots that he'll create for guys like Chris, like Drew, like a Pat Connaughton, Grayson Allen, a big benefactor as well in the regular season. But it changes in the playoffs where, you know, good regular season scores are told, okay, hit it again. Like we don't necessarily think that that you're that guy in the postseason. Damian Lillard is not that guy. So it's going to change a lot offensively. And, you know, it is going to open up a ton of things for Dame as well, because I think we've we've all kind of pointed to Giannis and how much he's going to benefit from having this. But outside of LaMarcus Aldridge early in his career, Damian Lillard hasn't had any skilled bigs like this to play with. And he certainly hasn't, hasn't had anyone uh, as good as Giannis. So like, yeah, life is going to be easy for Giannis, but Damian Lillard is going to have an incredible season as well. So last year, Grayson Allen got most of the playing time as the uh, shooting guard in this offense. Now he's traded the start. I think the top four is well known Lopez, Middleton, Dame, Giannis. Who's going to be that five, number five starter for the Bucks? Um, I still think it's going to be Marjan Bochamp. Now is that Sunday when the preseason starts? Is that the 26th for the opening night? That I'm not sure of, but I think eventually it's Marjan because, you know, as soon as they acquired Dame, I had said, well, the, the door is open for Marjan now. When you look at uh, the four that you mentioned, you know, Chris is your third option. Brooke is number four there. Brooke is still capable of scoring 
18 to 20 points on any given night, if not more. So that fifth guy, you don't need scoring from. Like your offense is is accounted for with those four guys on the floor. The fifth starter just needs to hit open shots and and play defense. And I think Pat Connaughton was brought up a lot. I I really like Pat Connaughton uh, as like your super sub and, and the ultra utility guy off the bench that can kind of do everything. He can guard up. He can hit some shots. Um, he can defend. Depending on the matchup, he can defend on the perimeter. We've seen him chase guys around screens like a like a Duncan Robinson as well. So I like using him in that role. Malik Beasley, I don't think it makes sense to utilize him in the starting lineup for the reasons we already listed, that Malik Beasley's skill set is scoring, and you're not going to need that, that he's probably best served as just a designated scorer off the bench. So as you go through the options, you just keep coming back to Marjan in that – well, like the Bucks are certainly very high on him. And, you know, last year we heard Drew Holiday speak very highly of him. Chris has. Um, we've heard the coaching staff this year already mention the progress that Marjan has made. We saw what he did in Summer League, where he, those first two games, he really started to break out, had that 70-point game in, in the Pro-Am, or maybe it was 80 even, in the Pro-Am over the summer. Um so all these things. And then earlier today, Damian Lillard speaking very highly of Marjan Beauchamp as well. And I would just add this. I don't think Damian Lillard and Drew Holiday are the type to, you know, just gas up their guys just to kind of build up their confidence. Like words have meaning to those guys. So I don't think it's just, well, they're just being good teammates. If they're saying, here's some positive things or here's some of the growth that we've seen in Marjan Beauchamp, I take that to be, man, he's he's really showing something growing so I think that it's it's a prime opportunity and the door is open for Marjan Beauchamp. Uh, it, to me, the only question is just with this new coaching staff, you know, we kind of knew in the past how Bud would bring guys along and use young guys. We don't know that with Adrian Griffin. So so to me, that's kind of the wait and see of, I really think it's going to be Marjan that, that has that fifth spot. I just don't know if that's when the season begins or if it's a progression and a little bit into the regular season. Yeah, I know we don't really know much as Griffin. We know he's coached under uh he's coached under Nick Nurse. He's coached in Chicago, he's coached in Orlando, in Milwaukee, in Oklahoma City. A lot of different styles, a lot of different hard-nosed defensive coaches. Um what would you like to see the Bucks do offensively? So it's it's funny because before they acquired Damian Lillard, that was what I had repeatedly said. The one thing I'm curious to watch starting in the preseason is, is what do they do offensively here? And, and what are some of the, the things that they do differently? Is there some low-hanging fruit that uh, Adrian Griffin looked at the team and said, you guys should have taken advantage of this? I think everybody would point to why why don't we use Brooke Lopez, especially when Giannis isn't on the floor? Why didn't we use Brooke Lopez around the basket a little more? Uh, I saw today when Drew Holiday just um, just joined the Boston Celtics, unfortunately, and was practicing with them, and they showed some some footage of him working in the post offensively and scoring around the basket. And that was another thing you would point to and say, man, Drew has this size advantage. Why can't we use that? So that was already one of the things that I was looking at now you bring in Damian Lillard, and that changes uh, everything. So now it's it's more of how many inverse pick and rolls do we see, and, and can is that something we see a decent amount of where Dame is setting a screen for Giannis, like we've seen Giannis do with Pat and, and guys like Tony Snell in the past. 
uh, but also some of the structure and how you you kind of line things up with some of your minutes and and lineups and variations of that of okay I would assume Dame or Giannis is is going to be on the floor at all times but with these four capable very capable scorers what's the split here and then your mind starts to wander of well Chris and Giannis have that chemistry and you can still do that two man game and I mentioned you know the Joe Ingles and Brooke Lopez pick and roll it, it, that's something I want to see with Dame of. Damon Brooke Lopez. So maybe that's how you stagger things as well. So offensively, you know, you're not reinventing the wheel when you got Damian Lillard and, uh, and Giannis and, and Terry Stotts and Dame had both already joked of, Hey, a lot of these plays that we ran in Portland all the time, man, imagine using Giannis as the screener instead of a guy um, like LaMarcus Aldridge back in the day, or uh, Yusuf Nurkic and, and some of those uh, variations of, we can just pull back some of those same plays and, and use these with Giannis. So that offense is going to hum. Um, to me, it's it's mostly just, okay, how do you kind of stagger some of these minutes? And, um, you know, to a lesser extent too, some of the young guys and, and how do they look offensively? Because all of these guys that the Bucks brought in in the draft here uh, this past summer, um, and then Marjan Bochamp as well, you would point to the defense for most of these guys, like an Andre Jackson Jr., um, he's kind of a floor general type that um, that can help run the offense and, and get shots for other guys and facilitate things, but scoring isn't necessarily his strength. So like, how do you develop those guys to me is the big question for this coaching staff and the offense outside of the starting five. So the Eastern conference we have last year, the Bucks with the one seed, Boston with the two, 76ers three, Cleveland four. I'm not going to go any further than that because I don't think it really matters at this point. Boston now has Drew Holiday, Pulzingas. They did make, they did trade away a lot of pieces too, with um, with Brogdon, Smart, uh, those guys. 76ers new coach and nurse, and but you have the whole uh, James Harden situation going on there. What situation is that? <laughs> apparently he showed up today i guess but he doesn't really want to be there and wants to be in la and or houston and it's just a huge mess so eastern conference where do you see the bucks stacking up um in the eastern conference i don't think the knicks the nets the hawks are really any teams to really think you know worry too much about and then if, you know the heats can be any you know they finished eighth last year but they have the talent to finish higher than that. I guess, where do you see the E shaping up? So um, before these trades, before Dame to the Bucks and then Porzingis and in, in Holiday to the Celtics, and um, before the, the PPP, as the league has dubbed it, the player, I think it's player participation policy, before all that changed, um, I kind of felt like, well, the Bucks and the Celtics, if they're largely running it back, they know what they have. Who knows what's going to happen with the Sixers? It it kind of seems like we're going to have a team jump up and an unexpected team be the one seed. And the Bucks and the Celtics are second and third or second and fourth or, or something like that. Um, where, again, it's destined for a second round matchup. Maybe it'll be the Cavs will be the one seed or the Knicks for all the talk that they've had. But these moves change that and uh, that that player participation policy that I referenced as well, which is another step the league is taking, long story short, to um, to curb resting players 
we already saw step one when they uh, modified some of the things like awards that you have to play in what I think it's 65 games to be eligible for that. And now this player participation policy where teams will be fined if they're resting guys and you kind of have to run it through an arbitrator who determines was this guy actually hurt. So that's going to be a, a fascinating study as well. Guys are going to play is the impression that I get at least close to 65, 70 games. And if that is in fact the case and assuming full health for all of these teams, I just don't see a world where any team in the Eastern conference com- comes close to the Bucs and the Celtics that on paper, those two teams should be one and two after that Philadelphia is the big unknown because what happens with James Harden, as you mentioned, he wants out. There just doesn't seem to be a market for him. And uh, Daryl Morey has not been one to take less than what he feels a perceived value is. Um, The Cavs are in all of a sudden a very interesting spot in that uh, Donovan Mitchell can leave in the off season. And there hasn't seemingly been any traction there. And then you got the Knicks who have uh, basically just become a pro version of Villanova. You mentioned the heat. Uh, Look, I don't want to downplay uh, Miami and take them lightly, especially after what happened in the bubble and what happened uh, back in April. But I mean, on paper, it's hard not to say they haven't taken a, a pretty big step backward because of some of the losses that they've had as well. And Gabe Vincent is is gone. And um, and some of the other moves, Max Struess is gone too. Um, you thought Damian Lillard was going to offset that, and now he's not there. So that's putting a lot of pressure on guys like a Jovic and a Jaime Jaquez Jr., their draft pick this, this past offseason. It's a lot of pressure on young guys in a system where young guys have developed, but still that's a tough sell for me that that these two teams should be far and away the best in the Bucs and the Celtics. But my only caution is it seems like we do this every year where last year the Bucs and the Celtics were also clearly the top two teams. They didn't meet in the playoffs. And it, it just seems like we never get that matchup uh, in the postseason. Or if we do, it, it's not where you want it to be. You know, like when the Bucs won the title, the Bucs and the Nets, that was your de facto Eastern Conference Finals. A couple of years before that, you had the, the Rockets and the Warriors in the second round. That was basically your de facto NBA Finals. So that's the tough part is, you know, if one team does emerge or if one of these two teams does have an injury or injuries that that kind of set them back just a little bit and all of a sudden you're talking about the Bucs and the Celtics uh, finishing two and three, that's a second-round matchup instead of conference finals. So... I'm going to be curious to see how both teams handle the regular season with, with a new coach. What is the significance of seeding mean to Adrian Griffin? Uh, that's TBD. And we just heard Joe Mazzula the other day admit, like I wanted to be the one seed last year. Like I was pushing my guys for that. And when the bucks finally caught us, I was really disappointed. So we knew who, how Boston viewed it as well. Um, I hope we see those two teams finish at the top of the conference order to be determined if, if for no other reason, then if we do get that matchup in the playoffs, it'll be in the conference finals. So moving on from NBA, uh, I have the Brewer game on in the background here, as I'm sure you are following along too with it. And we, before we started, it's two, one Brewers. Now it's pretty much game over diamondbacks up five to two and another season, another postseason disappointment. And for all the, the love of council, which I'm a big, Craig Council fan as Uh-oh. well. Seems Uh-oh. like come postseason time, things seem no. to fit well. And- 
I gotta want to get your kind of thoughts on the Brewers this. Wait season a minute. In the postseason. Are you pinning that on Council? No, but it's I'm not pinning it on Council. It just seems like we get to the playoffs and every time regular season, all of his moves seem to work. He does the exact same moves in the postseason, and seems like today Arizona has all the luck once again. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll say this. Um, it seems like I so I've seen a lot of Craig Council. Uh, maybe falling just short of slander through the years. I don't know that Brewers fans, or at least those that, um, that maybe kind of go to that. Like I saw it yesterday when uh, Jesse Winker had the pinch hit. And look, I understand what Craig was doing in that spot that your thought is we need base runners. Jesse Winker can draw walks. Um, I get it. But I think Craig also knew if this doesn't work out, I'm going to be vilified. You can you can bitch about Jesse Winker being on that roster, and that's another. It's puzzling. But I mean, what has Rowdy Telez done since May? He's one homer since May, I think it is. So yeah. the options aren't great. And I think your main point of these moves work in the regular season, and it just you don't have the same magic in the postseason because they don't have any bats. You know, like it's it's that's the 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 thing that stands out the most is when this offense started to come to life i think all of us were kind of stunned that you were like wait a minute we're we're getting this production from from our offense and it's been rejuvenated because of mark canna and santana and josh donaldson like these are the guys carrying our offense or at least being big pieces of it i should say and then you get to the postseason and it fizzles out so then it's like well should we be surprised that this offense is all of a sudden what it was for two thirds of the season. That's been the the problem is this offense just hasn't been good enough for years. And, you know, you go back to uh, for as long as we've been following the team, the, the, what the 2011 team was probably your best mix. And even the, yeah, the 2011 team was your best mix of offense and pitching, but they just had, this extended period, when you think back to the early 2000s and and most of the guys that were on that 08 team that broke through, they had this prolonged run of, we develop bats. Like, we have no pitching. It's basically Ivani Gardo and Ben Sheets, Manny Parra, we're kind of pinning hopes on, and guys like that, but we develop bats. And then it's shifted now in the last, what, decade, where it's, who's who's the last bat they have really developed? You have a, You have young guys that are up now, but you don't have middle of the order like power hitters and guys like Orion Braun and Prince Fielder and even Corey Hart and Ricky Weeks level guys. Like that's been the issue is they haven't developed any bats. They have developed the pitching. You can get cute and you can get by with the analytic side in the regular season, but the playoffs are always different. And if you're not going to spend the money to bring in those guys, I mean, we often see like, what did you expect when, when you saw – Josh Donaldson was given up on by multiple teams and we're relying on, you know, Carlos Santana still in the league and Mark Canna, who's been cast off by teams like the A's and the Marlins, that this is what we're pinning our hopes on. It's just not good enough. Yeah. And I asked my question the way I did for a reason, because most people know how I feel about Council. I think he's one of the best managers in the game. And I just wanted to word it that way to kind of get your thoughts on Council a little bit, because if I'm asking it how I normally would, Hey, council is great, isn't he? You know, most people, you know, I have one friend in particular just be like, yeah, you're just a homer and you can't look past anything. So I worded it that way intentionally. 
I like Council. I think if he leaves after the season, it's going to be a humongous loss for the Brewers. They might do okay next year, but in the next couple of years, they're going to really feel Council not being there. I think it's, I think it's a matter of when he leaves. And uh, look, I know people are not coming to the Bucks guy for his baseball uh, opinions, <laughs> especially when uh, my my baseball tweets have been split between the Brewers, the uh, the White Sox, and and the Oakland Athletics, but. Uh, I have I have always, for the most part, for this season, I have long felt Craig Council is not going to be back next year. And I think everybody, and that's his decision, I think everybody kind of pointed to, well, he's going to take a year off and, and be with his family. It just doesn't work out like that. Like, you don't take a year or two off and then come back to this job. Because, you know, theoretically, let's say Craig says, and, you know, by the way, has he ever specifically said he would take the year off to be with his family or around his family? I, I don't think that's ever been stated. I think we all kind of um, just ran with that because of the age of his children and having two players or two sons playing college baseball. But, you know, let's just say he says, I'm, I'm going to take a year to be with my family. Okay. So then the Brewers hire a manager and that manager does well. So in a year you say, Hey, sorry, man, you're fired because Craig wants to come back. Like that's number one. That's the big roadblock. Um, but I think everybody has also slowly noticed through the year, you know, we thought it was going to happen last year and it just became official. What a month ago with David Stearns going to the Mets. And now the Mets saying that Buck Showalter is not going to be back next year. I think Craig council is going to be managing the Mets next year. And I wouldn't be shocked if Corbin Burns is pitching for the Mets next year. Yeah. So before, so basically it's been the worst kept secret for the last two, three years that David Stern was going to the Mets. The Brewers just weren't willing to, and maybe hindsight they should have worked out a trade package to trade David Stearns to the Mets to get some, at least something for him instead of, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be a consultant this year not be your president of baseball operations, step aside, and now I'm going to the Mets because my contract's done at the end of the year. I think they would have been better off trading them. And I know you don't see executives traded very often. I think uh, Theo was the last one to be traded, but I I would have traded him to the the Mets sooner, and then you get something for him. And yeah, I before before Stearns officially went to the Mets, my thinking was Council was probably going to take the year off. That was just my thing, in my opinion. Like, obviously, nothing's really been said one way or the other. That was just my thoughts. Stearns goes to the Mets. Okay, so now what, depending on what happens with so uh, Buck, is going to change my opinion on that. And as soon as he's not coming back, Mets are going to make a big push for him. And then you have the Angels fired their manager. The Padres are likely going to move on from their manager. The Guardians are going to be in need of a new manager. So... The spending war for council could get pretty pricey very quickly. Well, and that was my um, thought was like, so if Craig takes a year off, he's not coming back to the Brewers for the reasons that we said before. Well, you have to hire a manager and like you could, well, they could hire Pat Murphy with the assumption that, Hey, whenever Craig wants to come back, he takes over and you slide back to a bench role. That's just not how it works. Like, If Craig takes a year off, I wouldn't be surprised if Pat Murphy takes a year off and then goes somewhere with Craig. 
Um, so I always thought this was it for Craig. And then as things started to fall in place more and more, the Mets just seemed to make the most sense. And it was what, like a month ago where you really started to feel like, and it seems like he would go to the Mets or it would make sense for him to take a year off. Cause Buck had a year left on his contract and then take over after that year. And then when you got the news, like, Hey, Buck Showalter is going to be back with the Mets. Then it just seemed like, man, everything is just falling into place for this group. And even, you know, I kept coming back to the the whole taking a year off. And again, if, if the narrative of to spend time with his family was accurate, the Mets are going to offer you a ton of money. Like Steve Cohen is not averse to pain for things that he thinks is going, are going to improve the team. So that may be your intention, but at a certain amount, money starts to talk. And, and when you're getting into, you know, eight figures potentially per year to be a manager, then it's like, this is, I know I'm, I'm a small town Wisconsin guy and, and have those values and roots, but that's a lot of money to, to walk away from and turn down. Like this is beyond life-changing money. Yeah. And I was kind of like what you were saying, I figured Buck plays out the last year of his contract. Council takes a year off. And then after the year off goes to the Mets, gives Stearns the opportunity to really get his footprint on the, on that team. And then Craig comes in. Well, now I think it's going to be next year. So what do you want to ask? I know big wrestling fan like I am. Do I want to ask about that? Before we do jump there, we're four games into the NFL season. Green Bay sits at two and two. Bears sit at 0 and four. Um, just some general thoughts on the Packers through four games and then the NFL in general through four games. Um, so for the Packers, I had very, very low to almost no expectations coming into this season. Um, I just wanted to see how this team got better and progressed the year. Cause they're very young. Like I came into the year thinking this is going to be anywhere from a five to eight win team, maybe nine that they will be around basically 500 ish. Um, that was my expectations for this team. So I wanted to see the young receiver group, how, how they uh, gelled with, with their quarterback and Jordan love. And uh, I was obviously curious to see how this defense would work. And I think we've already gotten the answer to that. So I wasn't too, um, I wasn't too high over the bears win because part of it was, all right, this is, it's nice that Jordan love didn't look terrible, but it's also the bears. Um, That saints win was very, very nice, but it was kind of the same feeling of, okay, you shouldn't have won this game. You probably shouldn't have lost the game against the Falcons. And, you know, this past week or last Thursday in the loss of the Lions, I didn't get too dejected over it either for the reasons that we kind of said at the start, that I I didn't think this team was in the class of the Lions and the Lions were going to win the division. So for the Lions to beat them like that, it, it wasn't so surprising to me. I'm still um, curious to see how the year goes for Jordan Love because I, I still don't think we know how good he is. Uh, I think we have enough of an answer to, to – somewhat confidently say, okay, he's not bad. Um, but is he a Pro Bowl quarterback in, in that type of level? I don't know. It's it's still to be determined. So to me, it's just a matter of like getting all the guys on the full on the field at the same time and seeing what this team looks like uh healthy, but just seeing Jordan Love continue to progress and continuing to make some of those reads and, and some of the plays that he made earlier in the season 
where he showed that poise, like just continuing to see that through the years is basically all I'm, I'm paying attention to with the Packers uh, this season, because again, my expectations were not playoffs for this team. As far as the league as a whole, I had this conversation with somebody else last year and you know, my, my NFL fandom has gotten more and more casual the last five or so years with a buck season going on the same time as, as that. But it does seem like we just have more mediocre teams than ever before, where you still have the really bad teams and you, you still have teams that you look at and you say, okay, I think this team is really good. Um, but that's like three or four. I don't think you have any great teams in the league this year. And it just seems like you have this large grouping of teams that are just kind of, you know, meh, like, uh, I mean, that, that team, I guess if, if you told me they win their division, I may be somewhat surprised, but I guess I can see it. Yeah. I think Kansas city last year was that, quote unquote great team, but I think wide receiver wise, they just lost a ton. Um it's hard to really point to the the Chiefs as being a great team. Buffalo, I guess. But yeah, I kind of with you, there's really not any great teams this year through four games. Um so you talk about your expectation of Green Bay. I kind of had I I was thinking more wins than you. I was like seven, eight, nine. Um but my big thing is, is let's see if Jordan Love is an NFL starting quarterback. And I know it's, it's not really saying a lot, seeing some of the guys in the league, but can he be an NFL starting quarterback? That's step one to me. And so far through four games, he looks like he can be an NFL starting quarterback. Now, the question is, can he, as guys are finally healthy, like your Christian Watson, your Aaron Jones, can he start becoming more than just a starting quarterback in the league? Can he kind of, because by the end of 2008, I had a pretty good idea that there is something special about Aaron Rodgers. I'm not saying we're going to know that at the end of 2023, but I'm hoping to be closer to seeing that he is the long-term future here in Green Bay. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to see by the end of the season. Yeah, and I I think um, it's been a, a big topic everywhere the last couple of weeks, but I I do think you've at least seen enough that um, you have to extend him at this point. But to your, to your point of, is this guy elite? Like we're still far from, from answering that question. And the, you know, the big difference in why I kind of said that was my range for wins is we already saw it in the first couple weeks of the season where you, number one, you entered opening week against the bears and a team you've dominated with uncertainty. And and you may have people saying, well, I knew they were going to win, but like you cannot confidently sit there and say, we are going to beat the bears. And now that you saw Jordan love do it, and we've seen the level that the bears are at. Yeah. You can do that for the next matchup, but the game against the Falcons, they still went into that game. I think it changed at the last minute where they were one point favorites, but earlier in the week there were, there were underdogs the Saints game too. Like these are games, if you had Aaron Rodgers, you would enter that week saying, you know, we should beat this Falcons team with Ritter at quarterback. We got Aaron Rodgers. Like that's good enough to win the game. And the Saints game, even with injuries, we're playing at home and it's Aaron Rodgers that I I feel like he's going to lead us to that win, even seeing what happened last year. And that's the big difference is you just don't have, at least yet, that confidence where you enter a week saying, I know we're good enough because of our quarterback. Yeah. So for 
I still like Matt LaFleur. I still think he's a fine coach. But some of his decisions I'm starting to kind of question. And the big one is Joe Barry being the defensive coordinator still in Green Bay. I know a lot of people are talking about how LaFleur is more of a mild-mannered, almost soft head coach, which we've seen coaches with his demeanor be very successful. But typically, you got usually have a coach on your staff that can be that motivator, that rah-rah type guy. That's definitely not Joe Barry. Uh, what are your thoughts on LaFleur now that we're four games post-Rodgers? And to me, I think his game plan against Detroit was just horrible. And that's when I talk about his decision-making. You are facing a pretty stiff pass rush. And you're going to put the ball in your – and you're getting Aaron Jones back. And you're going to put the ball in your quarterback's hands and have him fling the ball down the field in five- and seven-step drops. And obviously that didn't go well at all. I – don't have your audio. No, I lost your audio. You got me? Yeah, I guess we're having more technical difficulties because, like I said, I oh, you're muted here down here. So am I ended saying your mic's muted and I can't unmute it. Can you hear me now? I got you now. Cool. All right. Somehow um, your got muted. <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of similar to to Jordan Love story where I still don't know uh about Matt LaFleur because I, I think we can confidently say um, those first three years, especially, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, Aaron Rodgers won a lot of those games for Matt LaFleur and, and some of the things that you've pointed to, which, you know, are not new this season with certainly the Joe Barry decision, but also, um, we will, you know, it was, we started to see a lot of it, um, in the past too, with McCarthy, where you would hear, we're going to emphasize the run and, you know, we're going to feed the ball to Aaron Jones or Eddie Lacey, as it were then. Um, and it just wouldn't happen that this has kind of been repeated. So I, I have no doubt Matt LaFleur is a terrific play caller and a very good offensive coordinator, but without the benefit and that same benefit we talked about with the safety net that Aaron Rodgers gives you, not only your confidence and knowing we're as good as this team or better than this team, he won a lot of games for Matt LaFleur. And I don't know if we know Matt LaFleur is a good head coach just yet. Yeah, and I don't even know if we'll know for sure after the season or not if he's a, a good head coach yet or not. I just need to see, uh, for example, probably should have let Barry go last year. Probably should have let Mo Drayton go a little quicker than he did two years ago. Waited two, two three, four weeks after the season ended. And thankfully, the current special teams coach they have now is, was still available. Um his decisions, his decision making in some aspects is where I'm starting to grow a little bit sour on him, but I'm not, you know, I still like him in the position he's in right now. And I guess we'll see. So, so want to ask you about this. So AW, they get uh, 
Daniel Bryan, former WWE name. They bring in formerly known as Page. They uh, or Page. They bring in all you know, CM Punk, Christian, Big Show, like whatever he's going by in AEW. I think it's just his name. Um, they they brought in a lot of WWE former WWE people very recently, and now uh, formerly known as Edge, now going by his actual name. Uh, he joins AEW Sunday, immediately going into a uh, program with former, uh, you know, our best friend, former tag team partner, on screen brother, Adam Copeland. Your thoughts on him joining AEW? Um, I was, uh, I was bummed, and I knew, like, you knew it was going to happen. Um, we started to hear what over the summer that edge's deal was was close to coming up and there were some rumblings then and then when he had that send off match with Sheamus you just kind of pieced it together they don't just do a thanks for 25 years and let's make a big deal out of a smackdown match send off thing in your hometown if it's he's going to be back in in a couple of weeks he's just taking time off i know edge uh quickly tried to dispute that and in an interview i saw some some of the uh, excerpts of it that he gave to sports illustrated a couple of days ago saying he was still on the fence and he thought maybe he was going to retire um after that but then in the same interview said um kind of dawned on me midway through that match i'm wrestling my last match in the wwe and i i wasn't sure about what I should do with AEW. So it just, it seemed like it was one of the more poorly kept secrets and it was going to happen. I ordered the pay-per-view on Sunday. Um, and I knew it was going to be good because AEW, they put on good matches. They just, they, they come up short a lot of times with telling the story and getting those details, right. And they just kind of rely on their work rate for a lot of it. So I knew I would at least be entertained by the matches, but I also, I wanted to see if Edge was really going to show up and I was hoping he wouldn't um, because, you know, my initial thought was I don't want to see Edge go there. Like I would, I want to see Edge just spend his entire career in WWE and be a, a lifer there that he's a guy that, you know, before ring of honor and, and before it became a thing to hone your craft on the Indies, he came up through their system where he was in Indies and in, in Canada with Christian, but they came up as young guys and, and they were there the entire time or edge was, I should say. So that was my thought of, I, I just don't want to, I'm going to be bummed out if edge shows up tonight. So I don't want to see this happen. And then I saw it happen and it felt weird where, you know, it wasn't quite the mid two thousands and early two thousands when you would have a guy showing up in the impact zone for TNA, but like, it didn't feel totally far removed from that. It just something was strange of seeing Edge show up in uh, in AEW. Um, the more time I've had to to process Edge's career, obviously the important stuff. Um, I'm still bummed that he's in AEW, but but you're also like, well, who am I to say spend your entire career here? Like none of us do the same thing. You bounce around from job to job, so he should be able to do what he wants. My my biggest trepidation and and fear with it is i really really enjoyed and i i don't dislike them but i really really liked aew the first like two and a half years 
when they were clearly a better product and, and WWE had gotten stale and lazy and a lot of Vince's creative wasn't working anymore. And AEW was giving you something different and the work rate that we talked about, but they were creating new stars and it was guys that a lot of people hadn't seen. If you were just watching the WWE for a while. And that to me is what really made them even more special and unique. And WWE has surpassed them. Like WWE found their mojo and has have gotten better. And I think AEW has, has taken a bit of a step backward. And part of that is there's been more and more reliance on former WWE guys and not so much the young guys that you developed and made into stars. And that was like the big thing of, I don't want to see this because it would just be another WWE guy that AEW is pushing and finding space for when you have you know countless other guys that who knows when the last time was that they were on TV. And the other part was, I would assume they're going to put him either with Christian or in a program with Christian and Christian is doing the best work of his career right now. He doesn't need edge and they should probably keep them separate because you know, if, if you're a WWE fan that's coming in and, and isn't familiar with AEW, but edge is the guy that brought you in your memory is well christian was the other guy that was with edge you know christian was the ecw champion or the b-level champion he was an edge and the star that edge was and i think you should try to avoid that if you're aew so what do you think aew needs to do to get back to where they were as you mentioned the first couple years when it was more reliant on the young guys uh, stop bringing in so many WWE guys, or could it be a matter of Tony Khan maybe having somebody actually be more, you know, be more on the creative side than I guess just Tony Khan being in charge? I think that's a, I would say, I think that's a big part of it, but also like we don't know behind the scenes, you know, what Tony is actually taking on. So I think it's kind of easy for us to pile on, um, um, there, but it does seem like that was that's a big thing. I know he has guys that he uses as sounding boards, uh, but it's a lot that that he's taken on. And even what a couple of weeks ago, when he was talking about his schedule with with Fulham, with AEW, and the Jaguars, and talking about how many hours a week he works, like it's a badge of honor. Like, nah, dude, like you you can take a break, like you can delegate things. You're gonna get burned out. So, like that seems like it's a big part of it. Um, but I just keep coming back to the bringing in the familiar faces and older guys and pushing them when like you needed some of them, you needed Chris Jericho to get the TV deal and, and to bring in casual fans. You needed some recognizable names. So you can at least say like, yeah, we got those guys too, but like kind of like TNA in the early going where you, know, you had some of that, but like the X division was really what made them stand out in knockouts of like, we have women that can actually work. It's not divas like the WWE. And then they just kind of couldn't help themselves and would bring in anybody that had WWE ties. And with AEW, it's, it's not that extreme, but I would just get back to your pillars and like making those guys stand out and finding space for some of those, those types of talent. And especially guys that, they may technically be WWE guys or former WWE guys, but they didn't have that long career there. And, and, you know, guys like Andrade and Miro and even Malachi Black that spent some time there, sure, but like you can make them your star. And there's just been so much stop and start pushes 
with guys. The storytelling is not very cohesive a lot of times. I think a lot of their guys that, um, you know, they have created freedoms that you don't have to go through a lot of the scripting the WWE goes through. It's good and bad because I don't know that a lot of their guys have the best of instincts. And I think, you know, currently one of the bigger things too is like, there's just this tribalism that uh, makes wrestling annoying at times where you can only like one of the two. And I, I get, I was somewhat guilty of that with saying, well, I want Edge to spend his whole career in WWE, but it's stuff like, you know, some of the stuff they do, it's just not for me in that um, like case in point MJF and this whole program that they're doing now with Adam Cole on paper, like, okay, I'm interested to see where this goes, but it's just turned into comedy bits and that's your world champion. And if this was, Two years ago, and the WWE is doing this with Roman Reigns. I mean, when they did this, basically, with John Moxley, those same fans that love it when AEW is doing it dumped all over it. So I think that's a part of it, too, is you've started to diminish your title. And, and you've created way too many titles that it just they're not meaningful anymore. And the whole the other big part was the whole Ring of Honor thing. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I think Tony loves and Tony holds near and dear to him as a longtime wrestling fan. This is what he was into, but the general public just doesn't care anymore. Like ring of honor. Yeah. If you're a wrestling nerd, like a lot of us are, it's a special three letters and like, Hey, that's where Danielson started. And that's where Seth Rollins met at some big matches and Samoa Joe and CM Punk. But the general wrestling audience now, they don't care about ring of honor because it's been, it's so far removed from that. It was basically, you know, a, a dead organization for a couple of years. And and Tony brought it back and there's just no home for it that you've blended it in with AEW, that you have this mixture on your TV programs that I think is confusing to fans. You're putting shows where Ring of Honor belts are being defended in the main event that I think fans just don't care about. And then your shows, you're seeing a big drop off in attendance because you're burning people out by going to the same towns over and over and then when you're there, like, hey, this is going to be a five-hour show because we're taping two hours of Ring of Honor and we're taping an hour of Dark and then we're going to do the live show. That I think it's just been a culmination of things that have taken AEW from like, man, the this is clearly the best product to now like it's kind of what it was in like 97, where 98, where the WWE was starting to gain some ground and, and we had, you know, those two, WWE and WCW, where you were saying like, both of these are good, or at least good enough right now. So I know Ring of Honor historically has a lot of, and I'm going to you know wrap this up soon, historical significance to it. But can't Tony Khan, because he has a big locker room, and a lot of guys don't see any work. Couldn't he turn Ring of Honor into kind of what NXT once was, then is kind of now becoming again for WWE? being that place where guys who need more seasoning and development can go and work on their craft a little bit. And then he'll have more options for his uh, bloated locker room. That's what I thought. And I think that's what we all thought they were going to do. I think they have, um, they've either cut back or eliminated dark. It's one of the two. And like, they should have done that from the start. Like once you brought in, ring of honor and you were trying to weave all this together you don't need AEW dark like use ring of honor as your developmental territory or system and that replaces dark 
the other thing too is just all the shows that they've added you don't need ramp like rampage started out hot when you had the title change where christian beat kenny and then it just became less and less significant where fans know this is not even the b show this is the c show not and then you, <laughs> yeah well yeah and then you get collision now where it's the same thing of like who who is asking for this who needs two hours on a saturday and i think we know the answer to that of because you couldn't sit down and have this conversation with your talents you were just ignoring the problem and like well here's how we'll handle it cm punk gets his own show but now you're left with not even this soft brand split and you have what five hours of tv every week now the same that wwe has with raw and smackdown um to fill and we've all kind of complained this is too much time so um yeah it's it's just been a combination of things I'm curious to see what happens with Edge because um, this last run that he had, I don't think it was great. It was underwhelming. I don't pin all of that on him. Uh, COVID certainly played a big role that he had that shock return and everybody was so into it. And then COVID happened and then he gets injured and it just kind of zapped everything. So that was just kind of some unfortunate circumstances that he ran into. Um, but look, even in his heyday, Edge wasn't a draw, you know, like, Fans loved him and he connected there, but Edge wasn't bringing in a, a, a ton of eyeballs. So I'm curious to see what that does for AEW. He said he's going to work a full-time schedule, which is certainly surprising for a guy that's going to turn 50 in a couple weeks here. Um, but it, you know, it, it's going to be funny now that he's, he's making his in-ring debut Next Tuesday, when I think it's NA, or MLB playoffs that starts, so now you're running into that that time where AEW gets bounced around. So Dynamite gets moved to Tuesday, and then you see the lineup that WWE is trotting out for NXT to go head-to-head with that. That um, If Edge's debut is the show where NXT beats AEW, again, it's not entirely Edge's fault, but it's certainly going to be interesting definitely going to be interesting um so i appreciate you coming on and great to talk more than you know just bucks as well and i am excited that bucks basketball season is here and you know going to be getting produce uh bucks talk and whatnot work with you again it's always a you know pleasure past couple years getting to work closely with you for Bucks stuff mostly on the weekends now but i'm looking forward to that again so just thank you for uh spending some time with me talking some bucks some wrestling some brewers and uh packers and the brewers currently have two men on with one out trying to make a bit of a rally in the eighth they're going to give us our false hope rally of course (laughs) but yeah appreciate you coming on anytime cool well this is talking sports with evan the podcast version will be out tomorrow morning the audio version and thanks for listening and uh get back at you next week uh going to be talking recapping the monday night football matchup with the packers and the raiders have a good rest of your night everybody